You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Some actors fall victim to a general kind of typecasting. John Wayne as the macho cowboy or soldier hero, Vincent Price being scary, Michelle Rodriguez as the tough Latina, and Jason Bateman as the bewildered straight man. Straight man here not referring to sexuality, but to the foil of the baggy pants comic in the vaudeville era. You know, the comic and the straight man. Rather than an archetype, some actors have a single character that they can seemingly never dissociate themselves from. Sometimes that means always being cast as a character similar to the one that made them famous, or that they made famous, or not really being cast anymore at all. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. When we talk about typecasting and inescapable characters, we're not talking about the people who only seem to play themselves in everything they do. Looking at you, Christopher Walken, Jack Black, Melissa McCartney, Dwayne Johnson, Adam Sandler, Seth Rogen, Michael Caine, Owen Wilson, Will Smith, Vince Vaughn, Zoe Deschanel, Jim Carrey, Clint Eastwood, Michael Sarah, Jason Hughes, Cameron Diaz, Bruce Willis, Ben Stiller, Samuel L. Jackson, Drew Barrymore, Ashton Kutcher, Helena Bottom Carter. But not you, Jackie Chan. You get a pass for being awesome. One cool thing about Jackie Chan, beyond the obvious stuff like nearly dying repeatedly doing his own stunts, is that he isn't leaving any of his sizable wealth to his son when he dies. His reasoning? If he is capable, he can make his own money. If he is not, then he will just be wasting my money. We'll extend a second exception to Danny Trejo. If you don't recognize the name right off, you'd know him if you saw him, and statistically speaking, you have. That long-haired, tattooed Latino badass has 358 acting credits to his name, and almost all in the same archetype. Trejo's done so many movies that he's sometimes genuinely surprised to watch a movie and see himself in it. Knowing that children from a similar background may look up to him, he has a unique clause in his contract. If his character is a bad guy, that character has to go to prison, or die, so his life of crime isn't glorified, so that the kids see that there are consequences to his actions. A boy's best friend is his mother. If that doesn't tell you who we're going to talk about first, how about this? Anthony Perkins had established himself as a respected actor of stage and screen throughout the 1950s. He acted alongside such names as Audrey Hepburn and earned himself nominations for a Tony and an Oscar. His career could be described as skillful portrayals noted for their sensitivity and genuineness. That's all well and good, but no one wants to play the sensitive guy forever. Hoping to break free of his increasingly narrow character options, Perkins took the role as Norman Bates in Hitchcock's 1960 classic Psycho, in which he plays a charming, bashful, approachable, if somewhat odd manager of a hotel, 
who kills the female star Janet Lee a third of the way into the movie, plus some other people for good measure, all at the behest of his mother, whose corpse he's been keeping in the cellar for years. You know, that old chestnut. Surely this role would free him from his casting rut and show audiences and directors alike that he was good at being bad. Unfortunately for Perkins, his plan backfired. He did his job so well that he became known for Norman Bates and seemingly Norman Bates alone. He did continue acting between Psycho and his death in 1992. Getting cast wasn't the problem as much as audience reception and recognition. Convincing a casting director that you're capable of playing different roles is somewhat easier than convincing the ticket-buying public that they want to see you in any other roles. It's been said that Norman Bates's most unfortunate victim was Perkins himself. Of the 30-plus films in that last 30 years of his career, this reporter has only heard of three of them. That doesn't include the three Psycho sequels made over the course of seven years, which, according to the official Your Brain on Facts calculator, is three sequels too many. I'm still big. It's the pictures that have gotten small. Hollywood legend Gloria Swanson delivered one of the most iconic performances of the golden age of Hollywood in the noir classic Sunset Boulevard. Swanson played Norma Desmond, a delusional, faded movie star who thought she was still on top, despite her silent film fame not translating to the talkies. Some say that Norma was based on Gloria, an actress unable to progress along with the film industry. And it only got worse after Sunset Boulevard. I never made any epics, Swanson once claimed. They expected scenes from me, wild, sarcastic tantrums. They wanted Norma Desmond. There are worse roles one can be remembered for than The Man of Steel. But as George Reeves, plural, could not have warned Christopher Reeve, singular, once you've worn the cape and the big red S, it's hard for people to see you without it. In Reeves' case, much of the problem stemmed from being a virtual unknown when he scored the break of a lifetime and got hired to play the universe's most famous Kryptonian. A Juilliard-trained actor, Reeve alternated between Superman movies and films like The Bostonians and The Aviator. Unfortunately, that didn't serve to get enough dynamic performances in front of moviegoers. The great acting continued nonetheless, as you can easily see in The Remains of the Day. But nothing could supplant Superman in people's minds. Christopher Reeve left two legacies when he died in 2004. One as Superman, and the other as champion for those suffering spinal cord injuries and other neurological disorders. He led efforts to increase funding for research after breaking his neck horseback riding in 1995. Even if you loved him as the Joker on Batman the Animated Series, and frankly I'd be suspicious of anyone who doesn't, the character most closely associated with Mark Hamill is far and away Luke Skywalker. Even before the J.J. Abrams-led sequels brought his character back, Skywalker was an ever-present part of Hamill's life. And unlike a lot of thespians on our list, Hamill regards the role fondly and was excited to be part of the continuation of the series. He said in an interview with the Daily Telegraph that even if he weren't recognized by millions as Luke Skywalker, 
he would probably still be the hugest fan of the film franchise, maybe even doing cosplay. Let me take a moment to dispel a persistent urban legend. Pop culture wisdom holds that the beginning of Empire Strikes Back was rewritten to include a fight with the Yeti-like Wampa creature to accommodate facial injuries Hamill received in a car crash before filming, one that left his face shattered beyond recognition and required multiple extensive plastic surgeries from some of Europe's leading doctors. His performance in the film is also not what it should have been because he was blitzed on painkillers the entire time. I'll confess, I used to share this information with my nerdy brethren. Mark Hamill did crash his car while driving, by his own admission entirely too fast, on a country highway in January of 1977. That puts it at the end of filming and post-production for A New Hope. He did sustain injuries to his face, to the sum total of a broken nose and one broken cheekbone. He underwent one single surgery to repair the damage. A few filler, or pickup, shots had to be shot with a stand-in, like wide shots of Luke in his speeder. Hamill did film between the Star Wars movies, and nobody says his face was busted up in Corvette Summer, though possibly because no one actually watched Corvette Summer. If you still don't believe me, look at the wampa damage on his face. It's mostly on his right, despite the fact that he broke his left cheekbone. You think you're worthy of super nerd status? Head on over to our Facebook page or leave a comment on the platform you're listening on if you can, and let everyone know what that bluish liquid that Luke was floating in is called, or why sci-fi characters are always floating in tubes of blue liquid to recover from things, or who the first author was to use this deeply embedded trope. No one could have imagined how big a cult sensation The Evil Dead would become when it was made by a group of friends on a shoestring budget in 1981. While it served as a springboard for director Sam Raimi, late of the first Spider-Man reboot, the film's star, Bruce Campbell, was not as lucky. Though he revived the character of the smart-mouthed, chainsaw-wheeling Ash for two more sequels, Campbell spent a lifetime trying to distance himself from the iconic role. So much so that he's been known to sign autographs as Bruce, don't call me Ash, Campbell. After finally putting Ash to rest with 92's Army of Darkness, Michigan-born Campbell found it difficult to land decent work. Two failed, but still good, TV series is later, and the only thing Campbell had to show for it was a recurring stint on the Raimi-produced Hercules Legendary Journeys and a swath of B-movies. The actor eventually embraced his notoriety as a B-movie action hero in the horror comedy send-up, My Name is Bruce, which is a fun watch even if you have only a passing familiarity with the character of Ash and his cult-like following. When he was part of the cast of the well-received and profitable The Outsiders, Ralph Macchio probably couldn't have imagined that the following year would see him in a role that both elevated and severely restricted his career, as well as imbuing the common parlance with phrases like wax on, wax off, and Danielson. It seems like all of his Outsiders castmates, like Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez, are remembered for more than one role. At first, Machio tried to expand his portfolio, 
tackling the Robert Johnson-inspired Crossroads. But then he came back to reprise Daniel LaRusso for two Karate Kid sequels, and it became hard for the public to think of him as anyone else. And just because you can't get away from a character doesn't mean they're not good for you. Machio is in front of the camera again for the Cobra Kai series on YouTube Red. Most of the people on our list still have name recognition for their actual selves. The next entry, Jim Varney, was nearly completely erased by his character, Ernest P. Worrell. Created originally for commercials in the Nashville area, it wasn't long before Ernest caught the eyes of producers who gave Varney a TV show built around him, and later movies like Ernest Goes to Camp and Ernest Scared Stupid. The TV show actually won a daytime Emmy. The movies did not fare that well. What no one could see through Varney's thoroughly developed, lovable hick character was that he was a theater actor of great range. Varney would pop up in other films after finally putting Ernest to bed, but only two of any real note, his performance as Jed Clampett in the Beverly Hillbillies movie and as Slinky Dog in the first two Toy Story films. A longtime chain smoker, Varney died of lung cancer in 2000. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Michael J. Fox was able to leave Alex P. Keaton behind when he became Marty McFly, but his Back to the Future co-star Thomas Wilson had no such luck. Despite being the primary antagonist of the series, he was a hit with the audience. They loved to hate him. Although the part of bully Biff Tannen was the breakthrough role for Wilson's career, the fame that came with it was not all it was cracked up to be. He endured endless Back to the Future fans asking the same questions over and over, to the point that he resorted to carrying around copies of a pre-prepared answer sheet to give out. He even penned a song entitled Biff's Question Song that continues to feature in his stand-up routines. 
Though he hasn't been totally without work, Wilson usually earns his wage as a secondary or tertiary character, and rarely in a blockbuster movie. Hey, why does Michael J. Fox make the best milkshakes? He uses only premium ice cream and fresh local milk. Why? What were you thinking? We've seen a few dozen people run away from Freddy Krueger through eight films across 19 years. The person with the least chance of outrunning the knife-fingered villain is the first man behind the striped sweater, Robert Englin. But unlike a lot of people on this list, Englin is not only accepting of his situation, but glad for it. In a 2012 interview, Englin insisted that he doesn't resent being typecast as Kruger. For every door Fred closed, he opened a hallway of opportunities. Freddy made me an international star. If that's the case, why hand the franchise over to character actor extraordinaire Jack Earl Haley? England is 70. He himself says he is too old to do fight scenes and the rest of the physicality that comes with the role. Believe it or not, there's actually talk of another rebooted Elm Street movie. Freddy never would stay dead. When the Twilight Saga finally came to a conclusion, the biggest sigh of relief may well have come from the man who played the lead role of Edward Cullen. Indeed, Robert Pattinson's flagrant contempt for the role is equally hilarious and ironic given that his performance as the brooding, pale vampire brought him instant worldwide fame. His later films, like Water for Elephants, met with tepid receptions and anemic sales. Things didn't go much better for co-stars Kristen Stewart and Jared Lautner. Stewart appears more in jokes about her lack of expression than in new roles. Lautner tried to capitalize on the following his hunky physique had cultivated, but he waited too long to try playing different characters. When 2011's Abduction came out, it failed utterly to launch the Bourne-like franchise the producers were hoping for. Playing a nerd is easy. Escaping that nerd is not. Don't believe me? Ask Jaleel White, a.k.a. Steve Urkel. His lot is shared by John Heater, forever known to most of us as Napoleon Dynamite, star of the little indie film that could that swept the nation in the summer of 2004. Donning a wardrobe consisting of outdated glasses, half-worn moon boots, and an iconic burnt orange lopsided fro, Heder created a character so incredibly dorky that he was like a one-man revival of Revenge of the Nerds. Heder wisely leveraged his 15 minutes of fame by booking as many gigs as possible over the next few years, including some high-profile films alongside the likes of Reese Witherspoon and Will Ferrell. Even with divergently different looks, it was nearly impossible for the audience not to see Napoleon. Writing Heder's name on the marquee was basically the same as putting Vote for Pedro on the poster. It's been 17 years since the world was introduced to Daniel Radcliffe, the lucky 10-year-old chosen to portray the bespectacled boy wizard in the film adaptation of Harry Potter. From relative obscurity to the height of superstardom in the flick of a wand, even author J.K. Rowling heaped praise on the director for his selection of Radcliffe. Eight films later, and it's nigh on impossible not to conjure an image of Harry Potter in your mind with Radcliffe's face. 
In a strident effort to break away from that, Radcliffe took the lead role in Peter Schaeffer's play Equus at the tender age of 17, in which he was required to perform a scene fully nude. Actually fully nude, no dance belts or flesh-toned socks. Critics raved over his against-type performance, and he has since continued his attempted dissociation from the Potterverse by starring in the horror films like The Woman in Black and Horns, and the absurdist comedy The Swiss Army Man. Those in need of Netflix recommendations, check out the miniseries The Young Doctor's Notebook and Other Stories, co-starring John Hamm, and let me know what you think. And now to the actor your mom thinks is Daniel Radcliffe, Elijah Wood. A successful child actor who dropped out of sight for a while, Wood was propelled back into the limelight by the Lord of the Rings trilogy and its reawakening of the avid fan base of J.R.R. Tolkien's books. To his credit, Wood had made a fairly concerted effort to add solid credits to his CV since then, such as playing a football hooligan in Green Street, a creepy lab technician in Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mind, and a downright terrifying serial killer in Sin City. He also did a turn behind the mic to lend his voice to the part of the Penguin Mumble in the animated film Happy Feet. Despite all of that, when you see Elijah Wood, you think Frodo Baggins. With just four little words, I see dead people. Haley Joe Osment helped establish not only his career, but solidified that of director M. Night Shyamalan in the 99 film The Sixth Sense. His role as Cole Sear, a boy with the ability to see and communicate with the dead, earned him a Saturn Award and an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor, becoming the second youngest actor to receive an Academy nod in that category, behind Justin Henry from Kramer vs. Kramer. However, in the years since the film's release, his only prominent credit was in 2001's AI. Though you will see him up next as a chubby Nazi in Kevin Smith's horror comedy Yoga Hosers. On the topic of child actors, Osmond's face was shared by Jonathan Lipnicki, the adorable, bespectacled kid in Jerry Maguire. And the less said about Macaulay Culkin, the better. Jake Lloyd, who played Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars prequels, didn't have the chance to see if he would be cast again. He was put on a torturously busy press circuit, allegedly doing 60 interviews in a single day, but that was nothing compared to the scornful hatred heaped on him by fans who were unhappy with the film that he made when he was 10. Jack Gleason, best known as Joffrey on Game of Thrones, saw the same path laid out for him. Joffrey epitomizes the villain you love to hate. After the very first episode aired, author George R. R. Martin sent him a text saying, Congratulations on your marvelous performance. Everyone hates you. Fans literally cheered when his character died. Speaking to Entertainment Weekly in the wake of that pivotal episode, Gleason explained, I've been acting since age eight. I just stopped enjoying it as much as I used to. And now there's the prospect of doing it for a living, whereas up until now, it had always been something I did for recreation with my friends or in the summer for some fun. I enjoyed it. When you make a living from something, it changes your relationship with it. It's not like I hate it, it's just not what I want to do. 
Just as Henry Winkler will always be the Fonz from Happy Days, and Tom Selleck will always be Magnum P.I., Alfonso Ribeiro will always be his 90s alter ego, Carlton Banks, from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And he says he's been overshadowed by his character, telling Metro, It has forced me to be my character, hosting game shows and America's Funniest Home Videos. I'd like to try some stuff that's different from how the world sees me, but I doubt someone would automatically think of me when they go, We need to cast a killer. Let's get the dude who played Carlton. Though Ribeiro did say that the role was rewarding in many ways. Sometimes an entire show's cast gets locked into their characters. Friends was one of the highest viewed shows in the 90s and early aughts, to the point that it's emblematic of that time. Despite this popularity, broader success was not in the cards for the actors behind Ross, Monica, Joey, Phoebe, and Chandler. The possible exception to that is Jennifer Aniston, who'd landed a number of roles in decently big movies, but still basically playing the character of Rachel. I wouldn't feel too bad for them, though. Royalties are a real thing. By way of example, Matt LeBlanc has a net worth of $60 million. The same concurrent adoration and stagnation has been felt by many TV casts, like that 70s show, MASH, The Office, Full House, Cheers, Mad Men, Golden Girls, Married with Children, and on and on. Fun bonus fact about Ed O'Neill from Married with Children, lately of Modern Family, he's been reading the same edition of a prop newspaper since 1987. It's a must for TV dads. Red Foreman on that 70s show read it exclusively. You'll also see it in movies like No Country for Old Men and the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Sometimes one actor can break free of the show's gravity, like Brian Cranston replacing his reputation as Hal on Malcolm in the Middle with Walter White on Breaking Bad. Whether or not he'll be able to be a fluid actor, or if he'll be held hostage by Heisenberg, only time will tell. Frankie Muniz, who played Malcolm, has struggled to make people forget his character, but tragically, he already has. Despite his youth and relative good health, Muniz suffered two small strokes, technically transient ischemic attacks, at the age of 26. These damaged his memory to the point that he can no longer remember many of his childhood acting jobs. Malcolm in the Middle ran for 151 episodes, and Muniz can't remember filming any of them. Let's bring the tone back up with the OG of TV characters that the cast will never outrun, Star Trek. Though it premiered in 1966 and only ran for three years, Star Trek launched a franchise that left an indelible mark on popular culture, including the first widely used nickname for a fanbase. What it didn't do was provide a lot of options for the cast going forward. But as they say, if you can't beat them, join them. William Shatner has had the most successful career overall, not from trying to outrun Captain Kirk, but by embracing the kitsch. Though having been a focal character in the ensemble cast didn't hurt. His analog in The Next Generation, Sir Patrick Stewart, faced the same love-hate relationship with his captain character. Stewart described what it was like being typecast in a radio interview. John Luke Picard was who I was. 
I did finally get into a room to meet with a director that I'd been clamoring to work with, and he was doing a movie I wanted to be in a supporting role on. We had a good meeting, but at the end he said, Look, you're a terrific actor, and I'd love to have you in my movie, but why would I want Jean-Luc Picard in the picture? Stewart also said his success on Star Trek really hurt his career for a time, and gave him pause before taking on the role of Professor Charles Xavier in the X-Men movies. Though let's be honest, who else could they have possibly cast? If you want an entertaining summation of what it's like when you're tied to a character forever and you somehow missed it when it came out, check out the movie Galaxy Quest. Similar to the way the mockumentary This Is Spinal Tap captured the touring rocker lifestyle, Galaxy Quest was so true to the experiences of the typecast actors that Jonathan Frakes, who played Commander Riker on Next Generation, texted Patrick Stewart from the theater while he was watching the movie, advising Stewart to see it as soon as possible. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today, though I could keep going on for a while with Star Trek facts. Gene Roddenberry wrote lyrics to the theme song so he could collect royalties. Leonard Nimoy borrowed the live long and prosper hand gesture from the Kohanim, a select class of Jewish clergy who use it to bless the congregation. Nichelle Nichols wanted to return to theater, but stayed on the show at the personal behest of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, I'm going to write all of these down for the sci-fi episode that's coming out for Father's Day. Be sure to tune in so I can tell you my dad's Trekkie joke. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word coccyx. Coccyx. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight, and, of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.